So we're going to continue with Sinclair Ferguson's uh, discussion of the means of grace in the sacraments. Last week was baptism, and then this week's going to be communion. Uh, before we start, were there any lingering questions or comments from last um, class about um, baptism? We kind of sped through some of that. Okay, good. Um, okay, so uh, before we start the video, come on, come on, do it. There you go. Just ideas to consider as uh, Sinclair Ferguson is teaching. Uh, again, on the idea of means of grace, this is how God blesses his believers that have union in Christ. And then there's going to be eight qualities um, that he rolls through for a right centering of the idea of communion. And then different representations from the scripture that match up to this visible sign. So um, with that, we'll go ahead and start the video. Well, welcome to study number seven in our series when we're thinking together about what it means to become a Christian, to be a Christian, to belong to God's people, to enjoy the means of grace that God gives to us, and to run the Christian life right to the very end. And we said right at the beginning that uh, this kind of study is really for all kinds of people, for people who are wondering, what does it mean to be on the inside of believing the gospel? For people who may be thinking about becoming a member of a church, and for older and wiser Christians, because it's always so refreshing to us to go back to the fundamentals and to have those fundamentals in place in order that the building of our Christian lives may be on a solid foundation. And we've divided our series basically into three blocks. We thought about some very basic things, and now we've moved on to what are often called the means of grace. And I've emphasized already that we don't mean by that that so long as we use these means, we will get grace. What we mean by the means of grace is that God has given us gifts, and through those gifts, He draws near to us and blesses us through the Bible as His Word, through prayer. And as we thought in our last session, through the gift of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and we specially thought about the meaning of baptism. And we're going to turn now to the meaning and the blessing of the Lord's Supper. The word supper in Scotland can mean two different things. If you're upper class, supper means dinner. So if an upper class person invites you for supper, you know not to eat in advance. For ordinary class people in that category, I include myself, supper means something that you eat at night before you go to bed. And as I look back, I marvel at my mother's patience because I don't know how many hundreds of times she must have heard me say, Mom, is there anything special for supper tonight? I'm really surprised that she didn't, as they say, cuff my ears for saying that kind of thing. Uh, and what I meant was, is there cake for supper? And whenever I have that childhood memory flooding back into my mind, I think about the Lord's Supper. And I think that's a great question to ask when you come to the Lord's table. Is there anything special for supper? 
Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? The place in the New Testament where we get the most condensed teaching on the Lord's Supper is, of course, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians at chapters 10 and 11. It's a very interesting illustration, actually, of how much great teaching is given to us in the New Testament because things were going wrong in the church. And in the Corinthian church, things were going very badly wrong in all kinds of areas, and that included the way they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so, Paul comes in with this marvelous letter, and he gives them instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 22, and then in chapter 11 from verse 23 to 32, about what it really means to come to the Lord's table and come to the Lord's Supper. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that both baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments, signs, and seals of the gospel, and therefore they are both weighted with enormous theological and Christological significance. And we need to avoid trying to narrow down to just one or two things the significance of both of these signs, because they point to Jesus Christ, and therefore they point to so much of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and so much of what it means for us to enjoy fellowship with Him. And that becomes very evident in connection with the Lord's Supper in the teaching that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. I sometimes wonder in my more whimsical moments, I I wonder if I could get some three-by-five cards, and then instead of shaking hands with people at the door at the end of a service, especially a service where we had enjoyed the Lord's Supper, I gave out three-by-five cards with a question printed on the top. What just happened in church this morning? You know, I have a, a vague suspicion Uh, that's an understatement, I have a pretty serious suspicion that in some of the most orthodox churches, you might get very poor answers. The Lord's Supper is part of church life that we're so familiar with that, that perhaps those who are ministers and teachers would feel a little embarrassed about saying to you, you do understand what this means, don't you? But that's exactly what I want us to try and do in the next few minutes, to to catechize Paul's teaching here, to ask him some questions, and especially to ask the question, so Paul, what is the meaning? What's the significance? What's the benediction of the Lord's Supper? And I want to try and summarize that in a very few minutes in, I think, eight words. So, that three-by-five card, uh, if you're looking for an A, I would be looking for the presence either of these words or words that said the same thing. So, this is going to be, from one point of view, very superficial. From another point of view, it should feed us with help that will enable us to see how much there is for us to understand about the Lord's Supper. The first word is the word commemoration. And Paul points us to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When Jesus had given thanks, this is verse 24, 
he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And similarly, in verse 25, with the cup, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, it's very important for us to understand the direction in which that remembrance takes place. Paul is not saying, I want you to sit there and close your eyes and try and remember. He is saying the Lord's Supper will cause you to remember. The Lord's Supper is the remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, that may seem a very simple point, but it's a very important one for this reason, that the blessings of coming to the Lord's Supper do not reside in anything that is in me. The blessings of coming to the Lord's Supper reside entirely in what the Lord's Supper is saying to me about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I'm not coming to the Supper thinking, how can I, how can I work up faith? How can I feel differently? I'm to come to the Lord's Supper looking at these signs of bread and wine that are visible descriptions and statements about what Jesus Christ has done for me. And as I see their significance, faith in the Lord Jesus is drawn out of me. And so the direction is not, how can I work up pious feelings about Jesus? The direction is more like the direction, you remember, of the, of the bronze serpent that Moses raised up. Look, he said, and live. Don't look in here and think, how can I live? But look out of yourself to Jesus Christ. And so the fact that the supper is a commemoration really underlines for us that all the resources of our salvation are not to be found in ourselves. They are not to be found even in our faith. They are to be found only in Jesus Christ. B.B. Warfield, the great American theologian, has a wonderful way of putting this. He says, you know, it's not faith that saves. Indeed, it's not faith in Jesus Christ that saves. It's Jesus Christ who saves through faith. And so, the commemoration is God reminding us of what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. The second word that I think is helpful, and you'll notice all of these words rhyme for some reason or another, is the language that Paul uses in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians verse 26. For there he says, when we do this, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You proclaim. So, it's a commemoration and it's also a proclamation. I remember when I was a, a young Christian, uh, people used to argue, does this mean there always needs to be a sermon whenever there is the celebration of the Lord's Supper? It's not really got anything to do with the sermons that are preached from the pulpit. The sermon is in the Lord's Supper. It's as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Do you notice what he says? We proclaim. He doesn't say, as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's really important the minister proclaims Christ's death until He comes. What He's saying is that what we are doing in the Lord's Supper is that we are preaching the gospel. In the tradition of uh, communion to which I belong, 
what happens at the Lord's Supper is that the bread and the wine will be brought to the members of the congregation, and they will serve each other. It will go from hand to hand to hand. Now, you know, Paul gives us no directions about the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. But that tradition is very deliberately seeking to capture what Paul is saying here. That this is, do you know how sometimes you, you feel that people view the Lord's Supper as a kind of very individualistic experience? But what the Lord's Supper is meant to be is the congregation preaching the gospel to one another. And one of the ways in which in my tradition that's expressed is that here are the symbols of the gospel, and they've come to me, and I pass on the symbols of the gospel to you, and I proclaim to you in that action the death of Christ. So, if a little boy said, what were you doing there when you passed the bread and the wine? We would say, we were proclaiming the gospel to one another without words, but we understood what the wordless signs meant. They pointed to all that Jesus has done for us. I've sometimes wondered, actually, if this is what Paul means when he says to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly placarded as crucified? And that's the wonder of the supper, isn't it? That we not only hear the gospel through ear gate, but we see the gospel through eye gate. So, it's commemoration, it's proclamation, and then thirdly, it's benediction. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians at chapter 10. In chapter 10, he speaks in verse 16 about the cup of blessing that we bless. That's the English Standard Version, and it is the best translation. The cup of blessing that we bless. It's the word benediction. It is the word of God speaking well of us in Jesus Christ. And actually, blessing, the word that Paul uses here, is a very big word in the Bible, isn't it? It's a hugely significant word in the Bible. But in our modern times, the only time you ever hear it is when somebody sneezes. And, and people say, bless you. But you know, that gets you very near to the real significance in the Bible of the word blessing. I mean, why do we say, when somebody sneezes, why do we say bless you? That goes right back to the days of the plague in Europe. One of the signs of having the plague was sneezing. You know, the children's nursery rhyme, you know, play the game, you know, ring a ring of roses, pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. I remember. Uh, seeing girls play that game. I don't know why their mothers taught them that, because the all falling down was being dead. The roses were to, were to keep the smell of the plague away. So, in a world where the plague was seen as the evidence of the curse of God, the prayer, may God bless you, was a kind of gospel prayer. And that's that's what the supper sets before us, the, the broken bread, the poured out wine. It's saying to us, this cup that we receive is the cup of blessing, because in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus 
was willing to take the cup of divine cursing. But then there's a fourth word, and it is the word which, at least again in my tradition, we most associate with the Lord's Supper. It's the word communion. And Paul uses this term, various translations, of course, but chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a koinonia, a communion in the body of Christ? And is the, the cup not a communion in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And uh, I think we need to understand that that's what's happening at the Lord's Supper. I don't know that we can do anything about this, but I actually have a, a personal regret that we no longer speak about the host at the Lord's Supper. And the reason we don't speak about the host is because, of course, in the medieval Roman Catholic theology, the host is the bread and the wine that has been transformed into the body and blood of Jesus, so that Jesus is kind of localized in the bread and the wine. And because that was known as the host, Protestants kind of, well, you know what it's like. You, you stop using those words. But it's very important to understand that the Lord's Supper is communion, and that there is a host, and that the host is the Lord Jesus Himself. And this is what Paul seems to be saying here, that at the Lord's Supper, we are not being thrown back on our own resources to think good thoughts about Jesus. But Jesus has come as the host. It's not the church who is the host. It's not the pastor who is the host. The pastor, the elders are just the, the hands and feet, as it were, the message boys, the, the mailmen that the church uses to bring these gifts to you from the host. They're not big gifts, are they? You know, little bits of bread, little cups of wine. What therefore gives them so much significance? Uh, you know, I wonder if you've got a keepsake somewhere, somebody, somebody who has been important to you and that you've loved has given you something almost insignificant, but it's really important to you. Why? Not because of the inherent value of the gift, but because of the great significance of the person. And that's what it means for us to come to the Lord's table. That's why it seems to me in our churches, we need to try and do something about making the celebration of the Lord's Supper more leisurely. Because the Lord's Supper isn't something we are doing so much as a person we're enjoying, because He has come as the host, and He has invited us to His table. And He is saying, I am yours. And we are saying to Him, and I am also yours. And that leads us to the fifth word, commemoration, proclamation, benediction, communion, and consecration. And Paul speaks about this back in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 22-21, because he is concerned about the fact that the Corinthian Christians are, are not only coming to the Lord's Supper, but they're, they're going to all kinds of other feasts that were pagan 
in which pagan idols were being recognized, and he says, you cannot do this. It's exactly what Jesus says in the Gospels. You can't serve two masters. And so, either you must turn your back on that paganism and idolatry, or if you continue, you are turning your back upon the Lord Jesus Christ, because to share in the meal is to share in the person. And so, when we come to the Lord's table, we are actually reconsecrating ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how in some churches they have occasions at the end of uh, the mercy seat or reconsecration or ask people to come forward? And I sometimes think about that. Why would you replace the sacrament that God has given to us with a new sacrament that He hasn't given to us. And it's often a real sign in a church that they don't have a very good understanding of what the Lord's Supper is, that at the Lord's Supper, Jesus is giving Himself to you, and you are giving yourself in return to the Lord Jesus. Here's another word. It's the sixth word, and I can deal with it just in a sentence or two. It's the word repetition. Now, where do we get that? We get that from chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. He says, as often as you drink it, as often as you eat this bread. Now, here's a question, especially for those of you who are interested in language. How often is often? If you know the answer to that question, you will know the answer to the question, how often should we have the Lord's Supper? I know the answer to that question. I can say it with great confidence. It may seem arrogant, but I have full confidence. I know the answer to the question, how often is often? Often. <laughs> often. Why? Because we need the fellowship of Jesus so much. And it's like our own relationships, isn't it? Um, imagine you're at a wedding and uh, the, the, the minister addresses the bride and the groom, and he says, here is my rule for a happy marriage, kiss one another once a year. That would be a very strange exhortation, wouldn't it? When we love, we want that love to be expressed often, and the same is true of the Lord's Supper. But then there is a seventh word that I think we really do need to catch hold of, and that's the word anticipation. We remember the Lord's death until He comes. So, in a sense, these little bits of bread and these tiny sips of wine, it's almost as though God has deliberately designed them to teach us this isn't the full meal. The full meal is coming. In the United States, you have this tradition of the, of the celebration of a marriage the evening before the marriage takes place, the rehearsal dinner. And I've noticed in the American culture, it's the father who pays the bill for the rehearsal dinner. And that's like a picture of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? This is the rehearsal dinner, and the father has paid the bill. And it's because it's all of these things, commemoration, proclamation, benediction, communion, consecration, repetition, and anticipation, that it will naturally lead to self-examination. 
It will lead us to say, Lord, there is nothing in me that makes me worthy of communion with you, but there is everything in your grace that calls me to have communion with you, to know your presence, to enjoy your grace, and to trust you now until eternity. And that's the meaning of the Lord's Supper. So I think the, the function of listening to St. Clair Ferguson talk about those things, we're going to go through quickly the eight that, uh, the words that he uh, listed. I will not try to improve upon what he has said in any way. But um, I think in every case, you had a chance to see a shift from maybe the majority or the dominant opinion on the Lord's Supper or communion, a shift away from the dominant where we as sort of the classic evangelical individualistic Christian sits before the table and does a self-reflection. And I think in almost all of these descriptions that we'll get to that you know, we've enumerated, we're going to see a flip from that into I hope that will become a majority opinion, which is we are not focused and on ourselves and our sort of self-reliance to figure out um, you know, a, a repentance scheme or how much Christ has suffered, but instead that we'll begin to look to the Lord Jesus Christ as a um, unification with him and uh, taking in the benefit of knowing him. So that's what we're trying to do with communion, Lord's Supper, is understand that, um, that sort of shift. So Christ established the Lord's Supper during his last Passover Supper, and this is Matthew 26, but it occurs in a little bit different um, perspectives in Luke and Mark, and then the 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 is how Paul uh, describes the, the inner workings of communion. But this is a clearly established institution by the Lord Jesus Christ, so he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. And it happens during the last, um, his last Passover meal with his disciples. And that mirrors when Passover started, uh, when did Passover start? Yeah, in Egypt. And what's the scenario? Right, last plague, and they're instructed to do what to protect their um, their uh, their kin. What do they need to do? Right, a a unblemished lamb, blood goes across, and then they have a Passover meal that night. Um, and so they've been doing this since their um, rescue from Egypt, and this is, you know, a, a firmly instituted. Uh, right that they're participating in, and then Jesus is participating, and then the creates, again, this connection to Passover to his Lord's Supper. And this will, should mirror what we've talked about with uh, baptism. Baptism is not a sacrament that is just sort of generated. If anything, it's a clearly associated to um, the initial sacrament, which was what? 
I was going to say, man, I've done a terrible job, but we don't get that. So circumcision to baptism, Passover to Lord's Supper. All of these have an in, in, a, um, intrinsically eternal um, view with the kingdom, so they're not just New Testament creations. They are continuations instituted by the Lord Jesus, both you know, with uh, John the Baptist when he's baptized and then when he has um, his last Passover meal with his disciples. So, again, the parallels of Passover and Lord's Supper, unmistakable, unmistakable connection of judgment from God passing over based on the unblemished lamb. Only those in belief and cir- circumcision shall partake. And that was true. In fact, the um, Passover meal was not given to servants, which in a lot of ways that was a departure from what they saw where servants would be included in their rights. But it was only uh, the circumcised that participated in giving benefit to those for assurance of the forgiveness of sin. So we'll kind of zip through these. Again, I will not improve upon what Sinclair has said about these, but commemoration, the blessing resides entirely on the visible description of Christ's work. Okay, So I will say, because Sinclair probably does not have this perspective, I grew up again in a Baptist church, and I am thankful for that. Uh, I learned the gospel and understood the scriptures in a very deep way because of that church. But our view on the Lord's Supper was really remembrance. And this is the closest to remembrance, but it's not just a remembrance on his suffering. But again, it's an improvement so that we think about Christ's work, not just in his death, but now his resurrection and then his glorification which again models our death from sin and then raised to walk in the newness of life. Mm. And then proclamation, we announce and preach the gospel. Uh, Congregation preaching the gospel to to those that are in, in its presence. Okay. The benediction the cup of blessing to the congregation. And then communion, participation in the body of Christ. The host of the supper is the Lord Jesus. We commune with Christ and our brothers and sisters. To this, I would urge you to get away from this um, piercing self-reflection that we sometimes do in communion, or maybe I'm just bringing in my own baggage, but I think... We all have a little bit of that where you just kind of close down, and this is me thinking about Jesus' sacrifice. I would encourage you to look around. Look at your family that is also taking communion. Look at your brothers and sisters that you love dearly. This is a feast for the Lord's people. And so it's okay to look around and not have a, you know, either a stoic face or a you know, a grieved face of only our sin against the Lord Jesus Christ, but instead to be joyful and enjoy the people that we have communion with. That's what it looked like at the last Passover. Christ giving bread to his disciples and them having that um, interaction. 
consecration, uh, special meal, we don't sh share it with idols. All of uh, chapter 10 is talking about how participating in a feast with idols is sin, how to avoid this, and then he talks about um, participation at the Lord's Supper. So we don't merge these two things. Um, Sinclair then continued with that thought, and we don't exchange the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ with ourselves either. Okay, So again, I'm getting us out of this self-reflective response, but instead thinking about uh, Jesus and the gift. Repetition, this was well handled. You know, I was waiting to hear, okay, it's going to be weekly, or it's going to be monthly, or it's going to be quarterly. Often is often. I will say this, I've been in both traditions within the PCA and my church in Richmond. They did it weekly. We, have, we do it here monthly. I have not seen uh, the danger that folks representing each of those time frames will represent. People here will say, you know, on a monthly, we can't do this weekly. It would grow tiresome. To that I say, well, then we should not preach Christ weekly because we will tire of him as well. But then the folks that do it weekly will say, you know, listen, if you do it monthly, then we will forget. You know, you will forget of the, the uh, benefit of the Lord's Supper. And here, that has not been the case either. So sometimes it's just about the functioning and the logistics of having communion. Again, at All Saints, it was 120 people in a, you know, in a small building, uh, and then uh, they didn't do contemporary music and only did two songs. So that's going to be fine to work in communion on a weekly basis. Here, you're just going to have a different logistics to deal with, and those things matter. But either way, often is often. So I don't think one tradition is, is over the other, um, but it's an encouragement to be gracious to folks that see that from a different perspective. From my tradition as a Baptist, we did it quarterly. And um, I would say throw everything else out the window that I just said. I don't think that's right. I think they should do it more often. <laughs> Anticipation until he comes again. This isn't the full meal. This is the rehearsal meal. What a great point, right? But we are getting uh, these um, small reminders and blessings about um, the Lord coming back. So we'll uh, entertain that in full. So that should be encouraging as well. And then self-examination, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Rightly discerning the body and avoid eating in an unworthy manner. We'll jump a little bit into this because I think this is the, uh, a lot of times the rub as we deal with communion. So biblical church fence the Lord's table, so that those partake meet the conditions of the sacrament which they recognize they need Christ and trust him, communicant members and other churches. So a lot to unpack here. Just as though when we referred the Passover only going to those that were circumcised, the church sees in the New Testament some warnings. And those warnings are for folks to not take the meal in an unworthy manner, and that is the comparison to those that were eating and um, becoming drunk with the wine, which I would probably say is unworthy manner, or sharing the table with idols. So those are the two that, are, that Paul's using as an example of, you know, to avoid, and then we need to rightly discern the, the body. So 
the church has seen this and in a reaction that I think is correct. The church will see, at least in the PCA, members um, all believing adults that have been baptized and their children are members of, of Redeemer. They're not second-class citizens. They're all members. But we like to see the members become communicant members so that we can understand as elders that are protecting the families that they understand what the body and blood are and they are not taking communion so, uh, in a way that they're not discerning the body. Now, I do not believe that God is just waiting to smite our little children and he's going to hit them with the thunderbolt of judgment because they do not understand the body to the degree that one of us might. And that's where it's been abused. I don't think that a, a, a young six or seven-year-old should have to explain all that comes with Christ. But they should be able to differentiate. This is the taking of Christ and not just goldfish and, you know, um, a juice cup. Okay? So that's where the elders come in, and that's where we will do a, a membership class and not becoming members. They're already members. They're already engrafted into Christ. They already have the sign um, and seal of, um, of baptism, but it is, again, a, a step that we see that's biblical. So, when do communicant members partake outside of discipline that are take Christ as often as there's opportunity? Unworthy and discerning are words of separation, not struggle, Ready or neediness or unpreparedness. So we've covered the communion part uh, with elders. Elders also, when we uh, will work with a member that is outside of any discernible following of Christ in a step-by-step -step process, will ultimately say, we are asking you to hold off on the Lord's table because just as Paul said, do this because many of you are sick or dying. So there's real judgment with the um, sacrament of the Lord's uh, Supper, just like there's real blessing. And so as a cautionary care for folks, when we see them well outside of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, we'll withhold the table. Outside of that, I will say strongly, there is no reason that you should not take the Lord's Supper, even if you are in sin, even if you are in sin that you are not repenting for. It would be crazy for y'all to have a sin that you do not want to repent for and then resist the most helpful thing that you can do at church to help you to repent for sin that you might be ensnared in. Does that make sense? So you come to the table, you're unprepared, you feel terrible because you've been, you know, I'm going to use Anne as my example. Because Anne has been yelling at me in the car. I didn't clean the house well enough. This is obviously a fictitious um, uh, story now. <laughs> yelling at me, she comes to communion. I've done this in the past. I've said, well, I'm just not prepared. I don't want judgment on me. I, I think that's nonsense. Go to the table. Go to Christ. It's like putting your hands up over your ears when Dan preaches because you're not prepared. That's silly, right? So I want to encourage you 
take communion as help because that's what it is. It's not tidying things up for yourself. It's looking to Christ as help. Okay? I think that should do it. I think that's my last slide. There we go. Um, we have a minute or two. Are there any questions or comments? I, I enjoy this format. The only thing that I wish is that we had more time for interaction. So I apologize about that. Any questions or comments about uh, the Lord's Supper or going back to communion? Yes. So traditionally, what was happening was there were other rites that were going on within their you know, area that they lived in. So they were having more of, instead of this sort of um, monotheistic view of just Christ, there was other, just that you would see in Rome, there was other worship of other idols. So there was actual worship going on, um, and it's kind of like the conversation about, can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? The funny thing is Paul there says, those idols don't exist as gods, you could eat that meat. Um, but in this case, they were worshiping both. So he was uh, relegating that to stop doing that. This is, you know, Christ's blood and, and body. Yep. Any other comments or questions? Yeah. Yeah, I was very encouraged by it. again the passing, and you know you're not just going up and taking. We're we're you know we're just yeah, that's great. Any other comments or questions? Okay, let me close this in prayer. Christians, God, we thank you for these visible signs and seals that you've given to us. We thank you for the church, and we thank you for the clarity of Scripture as we move forward. We lift all these things in your name. Amen.